Thank you very much, Scott. And uh, I do encourage you to have that outline that hopefully you got on your way in. Uh, we're still in this sort of funny phase where we can't have Bibles in the pew. So I want to encourage you as we start uh, the book of Hebrews in the coming weeks to bring a Bible with you. Um, this is uh, always a good idea, but it's especially a good idea with a book of Hebrews. You're going to find um, this is a letter that refers to the Old Testament a lot. And so if you want to be jumping back to find those places, it can be much easier to do that if you have a Bible in your hands. And if you don't have a Bible uh, readily available at home, let me know uh, just on the door afterwards. I'd love to give you one uh, so you can have that with you. Otherwise, you can uh, get a Bible app on your phone. I use one called the U version, which has always worried me uh, that there's a Bible that's it's, it's you. It's all about you. But it's actually a good version. Anyway, there's plenty of Bible apps. Uh, enough about that. Um, can I just check, is this microphone a good volume? It's not too loud for you? That's a dangerous question, isn't it, with everyone with different hearing? But uh, if it does get too loud, just do that or, or something. Uh, I'm going to pray and uh, let's begin Hebrews together after that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and it is an awesome word. A word that, will you tell us in the book of Hebrews that today as we hear your voice, you call us to not harden our hearts, but to hear it, to receive it, to obey it. We thank you that you speak to lead us home. And so we pray, Father, that uh, we remain receptive to that word. We pray that this morning together as we begin our journey through this book. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 4. And uh, let me begin by reading uh, chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Uh, his name is Neil. And we went through Bible college together. He had an incredibly sharp mind, a brilliant thinker, brilliant with languages. Uh, in many ways, he excelled among the students of uh, the college at that time. But beneath the surface, he was just going through the motions. Uh, it was an academic exercise which had never touched his heart, which was hardened to what he was reading and learning and explaining so brilliantly. Uh, I couldn't tell. Uh, no one could, but in the years to follow, uh, he simply walked away from it all. Uh, now he serves in a secular university arguing against Christianity. Uh, his name is Andy, and we shared the golden years of attending and then leading a youth group together. And I have vivid memories of being with him and with many others around campfires on youth group camps, singing late into the night songs of hope to our Lord uh, and uh, watching him sing it with joy. But, but he's not singing anymore. Uh, if you were to meet him, there is barely a whimper of praise left in his body, barely a pulse of faith. Our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is so great, says the book of Hebrews, so great that to fall short of it is actually an unmatched tragedy. Uh, my friends uh, that I've named there, and I've made up names, so you can't try to work out who they are, uh, my friends did not set out to stop along the journey of faith. That was never the plan, uh, nor do I imagine any of us here who uh, claim faith in the Lord Jesus. I mean, what could I have said to them? along the way, in those years at university, in those years following youth group? What, what could I say to them now? 
And what could we say to each other that would make a difference as we, uh, well, as our hearts do tend to drift along the way? Well, Hebrews is that word. Hebrews is a word that places before our eyes such a great salvation as we read here in these opening verses. It's a word by which God offers, uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, gracious, timely help as we drift A word of exhortation, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, not to drift or not to ignore such a great salvation along the way. Uh, The book of Hebrews, uh, if you read it through, and I do encourage you to read it, it'll take you about 45 minutes as we begin uh, this journey throughout this term. Uh, It's a letter, uh, but I reckon if you read this letter, I reckon it reads more like a sermon from a pastor. Uh, a passionate sermon at that. No one has ever been able to pin down exactly who wrote the letter, all sorts of theories and speculations, but, but it is clearly written to Christians from a Jewish background, Christians who uh, were Jews and have now come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, you see that all the way through this book, all the references to the Old Testament, things that they would have known and loved and cherished. Uh, people who, uh, well, chapter 2, verse 3, seem to have come just after those who first heard from Jesus. In other words, they're second-generation Christians in the early church. And like much of the early church, uh, they'd undergone intense persecution. If you uh, read through to chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, uh, we we learn of uh, significant persecution that they'd faced. And yet, even in the midst of that persecution, it seems their young faith had flourished despite the persecution. But now it seems the persecution has ended... And life has returned to normal. And with that, drifting from their faith in the Lord Jesus seems to have begun. Growth has stunted. Hearts have hardened. Ears are becoming blocked. And uh, if you read through this book, it's impossible to miss the the echoes, one after another, of warnings about that tendency. Uh, I read uh, from chapter 2 before, but listen to chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Or chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And that's just the first couple of chapters. It it keeps coming. These warnings are one after another. A a warning uh, about drifting from Jesus and faith in Jesus. uh, to to, Well, in their case, drifting back to the rituals and the religion of Judaism that that seems so much more solid and, and reliable to them. And it's an urgent warning. And while I suspect few, if any of us, would be tempted uh, in our own faith to retreat to Jewish rituals and and religion, that's not our temptation generally. Uh, uh, This tendency to drift from what matters, from faith in the Lord Jesus to other things, it remains. Uh, Here's how one commentator I read uh, put these early uh, warnings and exhortations. He said, as we hear them, it's like the great gulf of time that separates their lives and what they were tempted to drift back to and, and, and our lives, it, it slams shut. The crisis that prompted these warnings is all too familiar. The danger of drifting from Jesus our Saviour to, to things on the periphery, to things that don't matter, to being distracted and, and losing sight of that. And so as we begin this letter, I want to ask you, uh, brother or sister in Christ, in light of the great salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus, let me ask you, how is your faith going? Now, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, whether you're new to uh, being a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, how are you going today? And that's the day that Hebrews is interested in as as we go through. It'll keep saying today. That's what I want to know about. Today, are you listening to his voice? 
wherever you're at, this is how God intends to keep you. Uh, for what does he want to keep you for well if you've got hebrews open there chapter 2 verse 5 this is his agenda this is what he's heading towards the world to come that's what he's interested in he wants you to get to the world to come he wants you to get to well chapter 11 verse 16 brilliantly calls it this the better country he wants you to get home to the better country and so how is god going to do that simply this with a word that says to you and keeps saying to you pay attention see jesus I have a look in the uh, very first verse in this letter as we begin our journey. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, as we read God's word uh, through history as we can, as we read through the Old Testament, we hear him, him and his purposes sort of unfold like a, a giant topographical map, if you could imagine that. Sort of mountainous promises are made along the way and, and then we see mountaintop moments of those promises being fulfilled and they're like a series of horizons and they're all leading to one mountain, one hill, the hill called Calvary, the cross of the Lord Jesus, where we're told in the New Testament every single promise that God has made has found its yes. And so climactic is that moment on that hill that all the speaking that God has done throughout history is divided in two by that moment. Uh, this is what God said and did before Jesus. This is what God has said and done in Jesus. That it divides everything by, by that moment, that hill. Uh, so final, so complete is the word of his son, as we read at the start of verse 2 of chapter 1, that it becomes, if you like, in history, God's mic drop moment. After he has spoken Jesus, he drops the microphone and says, it has all been said. And so let's unpack these phases of God speaking a bit more. Zoom in with me in just the, the opening couple of verses of chapter 1 and see how God intends to keep us. Here's the start of it, verse 1. In the past, God spoke. Now, even that should be wonderful to our ears, uh, the living God, he, he's not silent and unknowable. He, he speaks. He's made himself known. He's not merely an idea to sort of cogitate over in, in our minds. He's personal. He's relational. He's understandable. He, he can be heard and received and obeyed with joy. He's the foundational reality of God's saving and keeping work in our world. There is a God who speaks, speaks that we may know him and trust him, and follow him home. Uh, read on with me in verse 1. In the past, God spoke through our, to our ancestors through the prophets. Uh, he spoke by the prophets, which is really a shorthand version of saying the Old Testament. Uh, God spoke to his people through human spokesmen. And uh, as we read uh, through the Old Testament, and it's really emphasized here in chapter 1 of Hebrews, often that word given to the prophets was delivered to them by God's angelic messengers his angels and do you know what the word angel means that's that's all it really means it means god's messenger uh, the postman who delivers god's word to this world and to his people doesn't come riding on one of those red australia post motorbikes he is a glorious angel who uh do you see there in verse one uh, spoke uh, in many and various ways to God's people through the prophets. And, and if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see the diversity of the way that God has constantly been speaking. Uh, 
Uh, Moses, for instance, take the great Moses. You read the book of Exodus, and, and there in Exodus chapter 3, there is the angel of the Lord in a burning bush. And so massive is that moment that Moses is told this, take your shoes off, this is holy ground as I speak. And then if you, you keep going in the Old Testament, you get to something like Ezekiel, and there's the prophet Ezekiel in uh, chapter 37 in the valley of the dry bones. And by this stage, he's learnt from listening to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord looks at these dead bones and says, do you think they can live? And Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And here's what the Lord says to him, speak and they will live again. In the past, God spoke at many times and in various ways by these heavenly messengers through the prophets. And what we learn as we read through the Old Testament, as we see these angels giving God's people these messengers, is it's never a casual word. It's a take your shoes off kind of word. It's a take it seriously kind of word. Uh, for here is a word that can make dead things live again. And so we are to pay most careful attention. In the past, that is how God saved his people. That is how God kept his people. And if you've got Hebrews open there, have a look at chapter 2, verse 2. We're told there of this past word, to ignore such a word, the word brought by the messenger of the angels, is an absolute disaster. You see there, verse 2, the, the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. It's serious. But now we're told, chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, that the reality of God speaking and the, the consequences of not listening have become so much more great. Why? Well, look there in chapter 1, verse 2. It's because in these last days, he's, he's not speaking by an angel, he's speaking by his son. There's an urgency about the word that we have heard in these last days. And the last days really refers to that time after Jesus came and died and conquered death to the time when he will come again. In these last days, the word that God has spoken is urgent and it's decisive. God has spoken by his son. It's, it's so decisive that nothing more needs to be said. Here is a word that is complete enough and strong enough to carry us home to the better country. And... Chapter 2, verse 1, of this word, we are told this, you must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what you have heard so that you do not drift away. I mean, why, why pay such careful attention to the word of his son? Now, if you're a Christian, you know this word. You know the word of the Lord Jesus. You know the word of what he has done on that hill, on his cross. Why pay careful attention, most careful attention every day, not just the day you became a Christian? Why do that instead of retreating back to ritual and religion as the Hebrews did? Why do it in those moments when, when life gets so messed up? And I wonder if you've experienced this. I've experienced this pastorally with people. When, when life can be so messy that speaking the word of the Lord Jesus to them, it just seems trite and hollow. They say, yeah, I know that. Why listen then? Why listen when life is so busy and full and has so much else that demands your attention? You know, I often see uh, Christians, and I see this in my own family as well, uh, uh, where I wonder in the busyness of life, how will we ever have time to pay this word careful attention? I mean, where is that going to fit into my current life plan with all the busyness that's there? I mean, do, do I feel that? Does, does it worry me? Do I have a plan? Why pay careful attention if... Well, and I suspect there'll be people like this here who are weary in their race of faith, finding it hard to keep going. 
Why pay careful attention to this word when it just doesn't seem to matter as much as other things? Well, 2 verse 1 again, we are called to pay careful attention. And I've got to say, as I read that verse, there's almost a question you've got to ask, why is God so desperate for me to keep listening to him? It reminds me a bit of the Reese family dinner table when there's six of us around it and everybody's trying to share their news of the day and it gets to the point where you've got to sort of almost put up your hand to be heard. It's my turn to to speak now. Is, Is that God? Is he some desperate attention seeker? Why does he keep needing me to hear him? I've heard him. I don't need to keep hearing it. Well, throughout this book of Hebrews, God will keep saying that. He'll say, do you hear my voice today? Keep listening. Don't harden your heart. Don't block your ears. Why? Because he knows your heart, my heart, is prone to wander. And he knows the word he is speaking is what is going to lead us safely home. What would it take to give this word of his son full attention? Well, imagine something with me. Imagine as we sit here this morning, uh, walking right now through the foyer is an angel of the Lord and he strides into our presence and and down the aisle there, a huge, awesome, flames of fire, we were told, sort of angel of the Lord. I imagine if that happened, he would get our attention. And that's a bit of a sense of chapter one. These creatures who spoke God's word to his people, they were awesome. You didn't ignore them. But we're told this, in these last days, God has gone much greater yet. He's spoken not merely through angels, he's spoken through his son who, well, if you've got chapter 1 open there, chapter 1 verse 6, even the angels worship this one. Chapter 1 declares, Jesus is so much more worthy of your careful attention. Have a look at verse 5 of chapter 1. It's quoting Psalm 2 there and it says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Or uh, verse 8, quoting Psalm 45, about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. That's who we're listening to, the King who is forever. Hebrews 1 says it's actually impossible to overstate just how important it is to listen to the word of this one. All he has said, all that God has said in the past leads to the word of the Lord Jesus And the book of Hebrews is that we're going to trace through over these weeks together. It's going to trace the path that leads to that word. And the opening verses are, if you like, a bit like a prelude. And they're saying, here is why you really must give this word full attention. Two reasons, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. It's that simple. Have a look with me uh, in these opening verses of of, uh, chapter 1. Oh, sorry, of chapter 2. Three things about who Jesus is. Firstly, listen to him because he has been appointed heir of all things. Uh, It's a reference to Psalm 2, promising that God would appoint his son as as king on the throne of this world. Uh, The nations in Psalm 2, they're conspiring and rebelling against God. God simply laughs and says, I'm going to install my king on my hill and my son and he will be there forever. And in Jesus, that promise is fulfilled. He is appointed heir of all things. Now think about that for a moment. Think about your life. Don't you think the one who is heir of all things, including all the things that are in your life, is worthy of your attention? He's in charge of them all. And when he speaks, he says, don't harden your heart. For as heir of all things, as as he says in the gospel, when when Jesus says this, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. When, When the king says that, he has the power and the authority and the resources to bring it about. 
And when he says in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from my love, not life, nor death, nor anything else, he has the power to make good on that. And when he says, as he does in, in Revelation chapter 21, then there will be no death or mourning or crying or pain as heir of all things he can deliver. Listen to him because he is the heir of all things. Secondly, uh, again in chapter 2, listen to him because he created and sustained all things by the power of his word. Again, consider the details of your life and hear this word. All of that, he is sustaining by his mighty word. I wonder if you think about it that way. Do you think he is that important to the details of your life? He upholds all things by speaking. He created it by speaking. And the reason it exists right now and hasn't fallen apart is because he speaks. Uh, he speaks galaxies and mountains and oceans. He speaks molecules and enzymes and synapses. He speaks children and careers and superannuation plans. All of it held together by the fact that he speaks. I reckon sometimes I, I hear Christians using this phrase, and in one sense it's a helpful phrase. Uh, when, when people become Christians, they say, I invited Jesus into my life. Or, or if they are a Christian, they say, I have Jesus as part of my life. And in one sense that helpfully explains that Jesus has become part of uh, the way you think and view the world. But the problem with it is it gets the dimensions all wrong. It's like Jesus is a, like a pocket-sized companion that I get to take for a walk as I go through life. But Hebrews 1 says, no, don't, don't get the dimensions wrong. When you come to him by faith, you're caught up in his enormous life. He is the king and the sustainer of all things. When you invite him in, he comes in and takes over the whole joint. We must, therefore, pay the most careful attention as he speaks. And the third reason to pay careful attention because of who he is, do you see it there? Again in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he, it is because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You want to know what God is like? Well, as Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you want to see what God's glory is like, then see Jesus. You know, one of my favourite little sections in the Gospels is in Luke 5 when Jesus goes out fishing with Peter and they're, they're on the lake there and uh, it was one of those classic fishing scenes where Jesus is obviously very good at fishing and uh, he says to Peter, why don't you try on the other side? And uh, Peter tries on the other side and the, the haul of fish is so enormous they can't even get it into the boat. And at that point, it's like Peter has a tiny glimpse of just how powerful this one who is with him in the boat is. And do you know what he says? As he looks and sees Jesus, not just as this man like him, but actually God, he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I reckon if the word of the Son, the word of the gospel, has not exposed your sin and how far short you fall of God's glory, you are not listening carefully. But here's the other reason why we must pay careful attention to the word of his Son. Yes, he speaks that word to show us who he is and that exposes our sin. But he also speaks a word to show us what he has done and that deals with our sin. And that's actually going to be the focus of these 13 chapters. But, but as we finish, here's 13 chapters summed up in one sentence. And it's not my sentence, it's there in uh, chapter 1 verse 3. Here's what he has done. He provided purification for sins. And then he sat down. 
How has God saved you? How does he keep you? He speaks the word of his son, the word who was made flesh and came and dwelt among us and has now made a way for sinners like you and me to be able to approach God's throne of grace with confidence despite our sin. God speaks this word straight at our world's most fundamental problem. What's our world's most fundamental problem? It's not the pandemic. It's not climate change. It is the problem of human sin before a holy God. Uh, It is, as the author G.K. Chesterton once wrote to a newspaper, there was a newspaper in England asking uh, people to give an answer. What do you think is the problem with the world? And everyone was sending in their answers. Here's Chesterton's answer. Dear sir, I am. We're the problem. And the problem we have made is that we are sinners before a holy God who is rightfully angry and will judge our sin. It is the sin of living as if we're in charge of all things rather than the heir of all things. And our world calls living like that independence. But do you know what God calls it? Foolishness. Sin is a problem and it's a problem not just for this world. It's actually a problem for the world to come. Uh, Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. Here's the problem. Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. God speaks to expose that problem so that we don't miss it. But, but he also, as he speaks, our world keeps ignoring that problem. Our proud, independent, self-important world cannot get its head around the idea that the problem is us. I was reminded of that the other day uh, watching Q&A and every now and then on Q&A they, they wheel out a Christian, kind of like the Roman Empire used to do in the Colosseum, sort of feed him to the lions and uh, they wheeled out a Christian and uh, at points brilliant clear explanation of the gospel and, and at one point part of that explanation was explaining that uh, the heart of Christianity is coming to repentance and faith before God. And, and at that point, uh, a liberal minister piped up, also on the panel, do you think I need to repent? At which points, a point there was chortles, at which the host joined in and, and asked the question again on behalf of the minister, do you think he needs to repent? It doesn't compute in our world that we have anything to repent of. It reminds me of uh, the Brad Pitt movie. He makes terrible movies, and this is a terrible movie, but um, Meet Joe Black. And it's about a man who's right at the end of his life, and he's being ushered into uh, the afterlife. And at that point, he's wondering what's going to happen after his death. And he asks this question, should I be worried? And here's the answer, and here's our world's answer to that question. Not a man like you. We are convinced that we have nothing to repent of. We are our own kings. But here's the truth of it. The true king says we are destined to die once and after that we will face his judgment. Sin is at the heart of us. An unbelief that leads to all sorts of wrong turns and sometimes those wrong turns will look very moral and very upright but God will judge it and we are guilty. And you and I cannot remove it, the guilt that is, by making up for it, by covering up, by running away from it, we remain guilty. It is as, uh, well, this is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, we actually have this strange illusion as humans that mere time will cancel my sin, but time does nothing either to the fact or the guilt of sin. Yet here in these last days, God speaks the word of his son. And yes, he does say in Hebrews 9.27 that it is true that we are destined to die once and after that we'll face his judgment. But do you know what the very next word he says in chapter 9 verse 28 is? Because of that, so Christ was sacrificed. 
once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Or as Hebrews chapter 1 puts it, he provided a purification for sins. He dealt with the problem. And only he could because of who he is. He is God's perfect son. Because of what he has done, he shed his blood. And chapter 9 verse 22 of this letter says, without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness. And he did it. And it was enough. And if you want proof it's enough, have a look at the next thing he did in chapter 1, verse 3, after he'd given his blood for the purification of sins. Do you know what he did? He sat down. It was all done. It's finished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. There is God's mic drop moment to our world. It is done. And so I want to say as we begin this series together, if you are a Christian and you find yourself moving on from the foot of the cross... God says to you, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Hebrews is for all of us a call to watch out for that drift. It's a call to listen carefully to the word of his son. It's how he saved you. It's how he'll keep you. It's how he brings you safe home to that better country that is yet to come. Well, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us through and through. You know us better than we know ourselves and you know our hearts are prone to wander. Uh, give us a sense of that danger. Give us a sense of your wonderful, wonderful plan to deal with that danger, this word of your Son. Set our hearts on that word. Soften our hearts to that word, we pray, for your glory's sake and for our good. Amen.